delighted that you've made it your decision to be here tonight, and I hope you've got your Bible with you. I encourage you to get that Bible and turn to John chapter 13 as our beginning point. And we'll be looking at John chapters 13 through 17. We may make reference to a few other passages, but very few. We're going to be spending our time in this context of John chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. Those chapters I refer to as a unit of chapters, chapters that lock together as a unit, because in those chapters, this is a message that Jesus is giving to his apostles. This is following the Last Supper in the upper room, and it is a special message that is recorded here and not recorded in the other accounts. There are some things found in these chapters that are limited to the apostles. For example, the promise of the coming of the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, who would guide them into all truth and show them things to come. That is not a passage we can go to and then claim that that is directed to me, that I'm going to be guided by the Holy Spirit. There are some things, though, found in these passages, in these chapters, that apply to us as well. For example, that we should love one another, and by this will all men know you're my disciples. It's going to be obvious from the context, some things will be limited, and other things would not be limited. I want us to look at verse 1, that this is a message for those that Jesus loved. They also love Him, but verse 1 said, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that His hour had come, that He should depart from this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. This group that he's talking to, his disciples, his apostles, are those that repeatedly throughout the context, he talks about how he loves them. He talks about their love for him as well, but he talks about how he loves them. The message that is found in these chapters could be summarized in their relationship that is seen in four areas. Their relationship to Christ their relationship to one another, their relationship to the world, and their relationship to the future. And those are the four things we're going to consider in our study tonight. So let's talk about John 13 to 17, and I call this simply relationships of those whom the Lord loves. Well, He loves us, obviously. Uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Jesus gave His life because of His love for us. Greater love has no man than this, than He laid down His life for His friends. And so those passages tell me God loves us, Christ loves us. So this has to, has to do with relationships for us as well as for those who were his immediate apostles. Let's begin with the first of the relationships and talk about what these chapters talk about in relationship to Christ. What is the relationship of those that God loves to Christ? What is the relationship as per this context? So get your Bible open. We're going to be tracing through several of these passages and listing things that have to do with their relationship to Christ before we look at others. Let's start in chapter 13 now. In chapter 13, he opens the discussion with his apostles with an action more than words. Now he comes back to words, but he starts with an action. And in this action, I want you to see that he is the example, he is the pattern to follow. 
That's our relationship to Christ. It was their relationship to Christ. He is their example. He is their pattern. Beginning in chapter 13, we're not going to read every verse of all of these chapters. We're going to hit some high points. This is the setting where Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And I want you to notice, beginning at verse 2, that the supper having been ended, and the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him, and Jesus knowing that he would go to his father, notice at verse 4 now, he rose from supper and laid aside his garment and took a towel and girded himself. That is, he girded himself as a servant. He's putting on a servant's apparel, so are dressing himself as a servant, and he takes on the role of a servant. He's doing that for a point. At verse 5, after that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to, wa- and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Washing the disciples' feet was, or washing the feet of a guest was the, the task of the lowliest of servants. If you were uh, a wealthy person, you had a number of servants, hired servants, your lowliest of servants would wash the, disciple, the, uh, the guest's feet. So Jesus is doing the task of a low servant, not of a high master, but of a low servant. And that's the point that he's making in this context. Now, verse 12, having done that, having gone through a discussion with Peter, when Peter said, you're not going to wash my feet, and then Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have nothing to do with me, then Peter responded kind of an overkill, saying, I want you to wash my feet and my head also. I want you to wash every part of me. Well, following that, now beginning at verse 12, that when he had washed their feet, he'd taken the garments and sat down again. He said, do you know what I've done to you? In other words, they knew their feet had been washed, but do you understand what I've done to you? Do you understand the point that I'm making? Look at verse uh, 14. He said, if I then, being your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you ought also to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, for if I have given you, for I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now we'll come back to the humble servant in a moment and we'll talk about the humility that's involved and the service that's involved. But here's the point I want you to see as per this context. And that is that he is saying to them, I have set an example before you. I want you, if I'm your teacher, to follow the the example that I taught you. I've just set the example before you of humble service to your brothers and sisters, to one another, and I want you to do the very same thing. I want you to serve one another. I am the example of that. Let's drop on over to 34 and 35. Shifting gears, talking about another subject, he said, and you commandment I give to you that you should love one another as I have loved you, he said, that you should love one another. Again, I am the example. So what's the point we're learning from that? That Jesus is our example. First Peter makes the point that he is our example that we should follow in his steps. The word example in First Peter is the idea of writing copy. That is something you imitate. That is learning penmanship as, as you have the, the perfect copy above and you're trying to imitate and make your copy, your letter, just like the penmanship that you see that is perfectly formed. So constantly we should be comparing our life to the life of Christ. The question should always be, what would he do in this circumstance? What did he do in this circumstance? How did he react? What would he have done? He is our example. That's our relationship. He is indeed our pattern. But let's go further. Same chapter in chapter 13. The relationship of those that Jesus loves to Christ is that some of those will not remain true. Some of those disciples, even among those apostles, would not remain true, and that's true among us as well. Look at verse 10. This is in that context of washing their feet. Jesus said, in the idea of cleansing their feet, he who bathes needs not only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, 
and you are clean, but not all of you. He talks to the disciples and he said, you're clean, but not all of you are clean. For he knew that he would betray him, uh, who he would betray him, and he said, you are not all clean. Not all of you are clean. One of you is going to betray me. Well, let's drop down to verse 21 now. Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he testified and said, most assuredly I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you is going to do that, and the disciples were perplexed and about whom he spoke. And now there was leaning on Jesus' breast the one whom he loved, we think to be John. And Peter motioned to John and said, if I might paraphrase this section, uh, you're, you're sitting there close to, to Jesus, you ask him who it is. And Jesus' response, the one that I dip the bread in and give to him, that's the one. He dipped the bread and handed to Judas Iscariot. This is the one that's going to betray me. Now let's drop down to verse 36. That was about Judas Iscariot. Now let's come to verse 36. And Peter said uh, to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterwards. We'll come back to that. And Peter said, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. And then the Lord said to Peter, he said, most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you've denied me three times. Now, here's two things I just learned from this reading of this context. I learned that some will not be true, but some know it and they realize it, like Judas. Judas had already planned this. He knew that he was going to betray him. He knew he was going away. He knew he was not a part of following Christ. But Peter, on the other hand, is an example that some will surprise themselves. Peter is able to say, I will even lay down my life for you. I will never do that. But he surprises himself. And so I'm learning a very powerful lesson. Some will not remain true. Maybe even this crowd, as we look around, some will not remain true. Some may know they're not true now, but others may surprise themselves. They think they're true and think they will always be true. And that's relationship to Christ. Now here's another thing. Let's go to chapter 14. In our relationship to Christ, that faith in Him will comfort a troubled heart. They are troubled at this moment because of a couple of things. One is He had just announced someone will betray Him, and they don't fully grasp and understand that. One of the disciples is about to turn away from them. Who is that? And he said, well, it's Judas. Well, what's He about to do? Jesus has also said He's going away from them. They don't fully comprehend. They don't understand. Their hearts are discouraged, and their hearts are troubled. And so beginning at verse 1, he said, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now that's far enough, and we'll read a little further, but to, to make at least one point. His point is that faith, if you, you believe in the Father, believe also in me. If you have true faith and confidence in me, that's going to help your troubled heart. As I'm going away, you say, I don't fully understand, but you have confidence and trust in God. They're facing many things, and they would face many things, and we will too, that we don't fully understand what's ahead, but trust and faith in God is going to help us through that. There's one of the things that will help. Notice it, verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions, and if it were not so, I would have told you, and I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That hope for the future that we'll talk about in a moment will help that troubled heart. Let's go to verse 27, same context. He said, peace I leave with you, and peace I give to you. They're troubled. They need peace. Then he says, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be troubled because I'm leaving peace with you and faith will comfort that troubled heart. Just build your faith in Christ and that's going to help that troubled heart. Now let's go to chapter 14. 
before we make the point from these verses, keep in mind chapter 14, chapter 15, chapter 16, at least in these verses, verse 26, 26, and 13 of those chapters we just mentioned, are specific instructions to the apostles, the Holy Spirit would come upon them. But there's an application to be made for us from that. Let's go to chapter 14, 26. He said that the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. This is about the Holy Spirit coming upon the apostles. What's he going to do? He's going to, to teach them all things. Look at 15 and 26. But when the helper comes, that is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. The Spirit would empower them to give testimony concerning Christ. But chapter 16 in verse 13 said, when the Spirit of truth has come, he will guide you into all truth. So what is it saying? Well, there, he's about to leave them, and his point is, I'm not going to leave you without any kind of direction at all. You're not going to be left by yourself. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you to guide you. And he will, by miraculously guiding you, to, to reveal all truth to you. And he's going to give perfect recall to you of the things that I have spoken unto you. Now that wasn't promised to us. But because of the guidance given to the apostles, that's now been written down. So we have that guidance. And here's the point we learned from that. Our relationship to Christ is he has not left us without guidance. He has given the revelation through the apostles. And we can read and we can understand. So when we're wondering, what are we going to do? Well, we've been given guidance. We've been given direction. We've been given assurance concerning the future. Here's something else. Go to chapter 14. He is the way to the Father. That is, to Jehovah God, He is the way to the Father. That is, through Christ. Our relationship to Christ is He's the way to the Father. So back up to chapter, if you've left chapter 14, let's go back to chapter 14. Where Jesus had just said that uh, I go to prepare a place for you and I will receive you again to myself, Thomas said, Lord, we do not know where you're going and how can we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. That's the only way to get to the Father is through me. Let's go further. Look at beginning at verse 7. He says at verse 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. That is, if you truly understand who Jesus is and understand what he stood for and the things that he was revealing, you would have had a good understanding of the Father. And Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. He seems to be asking and looking for some physical way of recognizing the Father. And Jesus is telling him, no, that's not, that's not how that's done. Notice beginning at verse 9. Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen my Father. And how can you say, show us the Father? In other words, if you see me and what I have revealed and what I've taught, you've been taught and revealed the Father unto you. You now know the Father because it's through me. So in other words, he is the way through uh, uh, to the Father. The only way to the Father is through the Son. Now let's go to chapter 14. Still talking about our relationship, their relationship to Christ. His point is that here's what love for Christ means. We started on the note in verse 1, he loves them, but he talks now about their love for him. That if you love me, this is what this means. Here's what this, this entails. So let's see. Now, before we look at these verses, let's think about the fact that often people talk about their love for God. I, I love God. I love Christ. I've always loved God. I love my God dearly. Yet they may not be doing what he says. Let's see how that harmonizes. Beginning at verse 15. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Here's what love means. You'll do what I say. 
So when someone said, I, I love God, but they're not doing what God said, they don't truly love God. Look at verse 21, same context. He who has my commandments and keeps them is one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and make my mas myself manifest to him. And so he says that if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Drop down to verse 23. Jesus answered and said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. And we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, there's a relationship with the son and with the father. Now verse 25, he who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. In other words, if you don't obey, you don't really love me, and you really don't love the Father, and you won't have a relationship with either one. That's what that means. Now, chapter 15, verse 14. Chapter 15, verse 14. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. So you say, I love God, and I want to love God, and I love Christ, and I want to love Christ. Well, your relationship to Christ, what love means is that you'll be obedient. Now, let's go to chapter 15 now. In chapter 15, he talks about the branch and the vine relationship. Still talking about the relationship to Christ. And the relationship of that is being a branch to the vine. Let's see what he says. He said, I am the vine and my father is the vine dresser. Now let's drop ahead and get ahead of ourselves. And he said, I am the vine, verse 5, and you are the branches. So his illustration is, it's like I'm the vine and each one of you disciples individually are the branches off of the vine. So what does all of that mean? Well, here's two things that I'm learning. We'll go back and read that and see that as we, uh, after we get our point. He's saying simply that life is gained from the vine. Just as the branch gets all of its life and all of its nutrition, all of its source of life comes from the vine, so the disciples are dependent upon the vine. They're dependent upon Christ. All spiritual life comes through Him. Secondly, we must bear fruit or the vine is cut off or the branch is cut off. So let's read now verses 1 uh, and the verses following are starting at verse 2. He said, every branch that is in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Remember, you're the branch, he is the vine. The vine isn't cut off, but the branch is, if it doesn't bear fruit. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. He said, you're already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. Life is dependent on the vine. You're dependent upon Christ. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. And if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch then is withered, and they are gathered and they are, uh, into the fire and they are burned. Well, that's enough to make the point. What he's saying is, here's the relationship of the branch to the vine. Life comes from that and we must bear much fruit. So what is the relationship of those that God loves, that Christ loves, to, to Christ? The relationship is he's our example. Not everyone's going to be true. Furthermore, faith will comfort our troubled hearts. We have guidance given from him. He is the way to the Father. That if we love him, that means we'll keep his commandments and we are the vine of the branch to the vine. Now secondly, these same chapters talk about the disciples and their relationship to one another. More is said about their relationship to Christ, but he does talk about their relationship to one another. What is that relationship to one another? Well, let's see what he says. Let's start again with chapter 13. Back to 13 in the story found in verses 1 through 20 of the disciples' feet being washed by their master. And his point is that you should humbly serve one another. 
Now, the disciples, before we go back to that text, had some problems prior to this. Do you remember in Matthew 18 is one case in point where they were arguing over who is the greatest in the kingdom? And you remember the two sons of Zebedee, their mother came to Jesus asking that one sit on the right hand and one on the left. There was this aspiration for power and prominence among the disciples. In other words, I may be a little more important than some of the others, apparently some of the disciples thought. Or who is the most important? Who will have the chief position in the kingdom? And so rather than lifting yourself up in chief position, we need to be humble servants. So what did Jesus do without retelling the whole story? Verses 1 to 12, verses 1 through 11 rather, of chapter 13. He got up from the supper, he girded himself as a servant, and he washed the disciples' feet. Apparently Peter didn't think that was appropriate, and you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, well then, I am going to wash your feet or you have nothing to do with me. But then Jesus makes the point, do you understand what I've done in washing your feet? I'm not just here to clean your feet. I'm I'm making a point to you. As I have done, you must need to do that too. So again, let's look at verse 12. He said, do you not know what I've done to you? Verse 14, he said that you ought to wash one another's feet. Verse 15, I've given you example that you should do as I have done. Not that they need to be cleaning feet, but that you need to be humble servants to one another. That's the point. You need to be humble servants of one another. Be willing to serve. That is, you don't lift yourself up above someone too good to do something for someone else, but bring yourself down and humbly serve them. That's the relationship one to another. But that's not all. Same chapter, chapter 13. Let's go back to this matter of loving one another. What's the relationship you have one to another? Humbly serve one another. So that does away with this strife that I'm more important. I think I need the prominent position. But then this love is going to take care of that kind of attitude as well. You should love one another. Let's go to chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. Then when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. And if God is glorified in him, God will glorify him uh, in him and himself, and glorified him immediately. Now little children, he said, I'm reading at verse 33, I shall be with you a little while longer, and you will seek me. As I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, in other words, I'm going away and you're not going to go with me. So here's something very important you need to think about while I'm gone. I'm not going to be here to settle the disputes. I'm not going to be here to tell you and remind you of things. So here's what you need to remember. What is that? Now verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. Not new in the sense it's never been given before. Not new in the sense he's never told them this before. It's new Not in time, but it's new in in that it's always relative. It's new in that it's always fresh. It's new in its scope, perhaps. It's new in in its manifestation and in the implications thereof. But a new commandment I give to you that you should love one another. Now, I gave you an example of that. As I have loved you, you should love one another. That's a great degree of love. And by this we'll all know that you are my disciples. Now, you say, well, how how are people going to know I'm a disciple of the Lord? Jesus said they'll know it when they see the love you have for one another. So then, let's look at the very opposite of that. What if there is friction between brethren, and there is not love for one another? Their conclusion is going to be, they're not the disciples of the Lord. They must not be followers of the Lord. Let's go further. Let's go to chapter 17 now. This again has to do with their relationship one to another. And that is, they need to be united. Now, Jesus makes two applications. Chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 is his discussion with the disciples. Chapter 17 is his prayer 
for those who are his followers. But still in that same setting, same, same context. So let's go to chapter 17, verse 11. He first prays for his immediate apostles, those sitting there with him. And here's what he says. He says at verse 10, he said, now I am no longer, uh, now I'm no longer in the world, but these are in the world. He's speaking to the Father now. And I came to you, Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you've given, that they may be one as we are one. So he said, I've taken these out of the world, these apostles, these disciples sitting here, and I'm praying that they will be one as we are one. Just as we are together, as we are united, we are not at odds. May they be one as well. May they be united. Let's go further. Look at verse 20 now beginning. He said, I do not pray for these alone, these immediate people right here in front of me, these apostles. Who are you praying for then? But also those who will believe on me through their word. Well, that's the scope of all who are believers. That's you. That's me. I believe on the Lord through the word of the apostles, so do you. And so has every generation since. So he's praying for all of those believers. What does he pray about them? That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may be one, that the world may believe that you have sent me. So what is that relationship one to another? Be united and be one. Now get the three things that he just mentioned in the context. Perhaps there's more. Humbly serve one another, love one another, and be united. You think of the power of that. These are the people that Jesus loves. And he says, if he looks from heaven and he sees, you know what? They love each other. And they're humbly serving each other. There's humility. And furthermore, they're united and they're standing as one, not as separate, not fighting in friction, but they're one, the power of that as the gospel is being spread. Now, let's go further and talk about a third relationship. Their relationship to Christ, their relationship to one to another. Now he talks in this same context of their relationship to the world. Do you get the picture that he's, he's preparing these apostles for his departure? It's important to remember your relationship to God, important to remember your relationship to one another, but you're going out into the world to preach the gospel. And that's where we are. We're living in the world. And what is that relationship to the world? Well, here's the first thing he mentions. He says the world is going to hate you. The world is going to hate you. Look at chapter 15 now. Look at chapter 15, beginning at verse 18. He said, if the world hates you, then know it hated me before it hated you. The world's going to hate you, he said. Now, let's begin developing some points before we finish the reading of that. So as we read it, we see the points that are being made. His first point is, you remember this, that when the world hates you, in other words, the world is not going to appreciate you. They're going to ostracize you. They're going to take action against you. They're going to be dissatisfied with you. They may want to distance themselves from you because you're my disciple and because you love me and I love you. Just remember this. Remember that they hated God too. So again, look at verse 18. Verse 18, which we just read, that if the world hates you, then it hated me before it hated you. Drop down now to verse 23 and 24. He said, he that hates me hates my father also. And I have not done, um, if I have not done among them the works that no one else had done, they would have no sin. In other words, their sin was revealed and exposed. That's the idea, unmasked their sin. But now they have also seen and have hated both me and my father. 
So one of the encouragements through the midst of looking, you know what, I'm dealing with people in the world and they seem like they hate me because of my stand for truth and my living the Christian life and, and trying to do what's right. Remember, they hated God too. But let's go further. He tells them, here's why the world will hate you. Let's go back to chapter, chapter 15, look at verses 19 and 20. Here's why the world will hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. What did you say? He said, if you were like the world and lived like the world, they would appreciate you and like you and love you. And, and they pat you on the back. What a great person you are. Because you're just like them. But because I called you out of that sin to be pure and holy, they hate you for that. That's why they hate you. Now notice at verse 20. Or let's go to chapter 16 and in verse 3 first. Go to 16 and in verse 3. Still talking about this, he said, And these things they will do to you because they have not known the Father nor me. So why is it that they hate you? Two reasons that he gave in the context. Number one, they hate you because you're not like them. And your actions condemn them. The other is because they don't understand Christ and they don't understand the Father. They hate you because they don't understand deity. They don't understand what deity believes and what deity stands for and what deity has said. But let's go further. Go back to chapter 15 in verse 20. Here is the result. In other words, because they hate you, here's what they're going to do for you and do to you. Look at verse 20. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. In other words, you're going to be my servant, you're going to be my follower, you're no different. You're going to face the same thing. Like what? If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Did they persecute Christ? Well, they certainly did. Did they persecute the apostles? They certainly did. Well, they probably will us as well. Look at chapter 16 and in verse 2. Chapter 16 and in verse 2. They will put you in the synagogues. Yes, the time is coming that whoever kills you will think he offers God service. We may see that in the future. We've seen that in the past. We may not be seeing that now, but generations in the future may see that. Some of you may live to see that in our day. Where those who think if you kill a Christian, they're doing service unto God, doing the right thing. The apostles saw that. So the result is, here's what they may do. They may be evil towards you. Now, notice chapter 16 in verse 1. What value is there in me knowing ahead of time that by serving the Lord, I'm going to face some, some struggles? And Jesus said, I told you this, and I want you to understand this, that it may prevent stumbling. Look at 16 and 1. These things I have spoken to you that you should not be made to stumble. In other words, it shouldn't be a shock. You obey the gospel and you study for a while and you learn this principle and then you come along here and you're persecuted and you're ostracized because of your stand. That shouldn't shock you all of a sudden. I couldn't believe this is going to happen. You were told ahead of time it was going to happen. So you shouldn't stumble when that does take place. Now in the same context, he deals with how to deal with the world. How are you going to handle the world? In other words, he's telling these apostles, you're going out to preach the gospel and they're going to hate you. He's going to know that ahead of time. They hated me, they hated the Father, here's why, here's what they're going to do. How are you going to deal with this? Well, the first thing he mentions in chapter 16 is you can overcome the world. You can overcome the world. Let's go to chapter 16, beginning at verse 25. 16 and verse 25. We won't read this whole section. It goes all the way down to verse 33. And these are some things that Jesus spoke to them in figurative language. In other words, his point is, I've overcome and you can too. That's his point in this context. So let's look at a few of those verses. Verse 28, he said, I came forth from the Father and have come into the world. And again, I leave the world and go to the Father. 
So I came and I came to this world and I'm going back. This was temporary. I was here for a little while. Now drop down to verse 33. Um, well, verse 32 first. He, uh, Jesus asked in verse 31, do you now believe? Ask his disciples, do you believe? And he said, indeed, the hour is coming and now has come that you will be scattered, each one of you, and you will leave me alone. But I'm not really alone because my father is with me. Time is coming again. You, you, because of the pressures of the world, you're going to be scattered. You think you're leaving me? I'm, I'm with the Father. Now verse 33 is the clincher. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In other words, his triumph makes our triumph possible. Now stop and think about this point just for a moment. That verse 33 is the ending he said, well, we got chapter 17 to go. That's his prayer to the Father. Chapter 16, verse 33, is the ending of Jesus' ministry on earth. There's yet to go in with his crucifixion. I understand that. But as far as his teaching and his instruction, particularly to the apostles, the last words that he utters, as far as the record shows, is 16 and 33. And what a way to end that. That he tells them to be of good cheer. Why do they need to be? He just told them they're going to face tribulation. But be of good cheer. Okay, how, how, how are we going to deal with this world? He said this. Notice the last phrase. I have overcome the world. You see, my triumph enables you to triumph. Had he not done that, we couldn't triumph. So his victory and triumph enables us to have victory and triumph. So you can overcome the world. Now go to chapter 17. One other thing he says about the world is... You can be, and I pray that you will be kept from the evil one. Now, this is in the prayer, chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. He said, I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. What was his prayer for the disciples? He said, they're going to be in the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world. I'm not asking for that. But he said, keep them from the evil one. How are they going to be kept from the evil one? Let's look at the context. Look at the context. Verse 14, I've given them your word. Look at verse 17, sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. That's how they're going to be kept from the evil one. Now, one more thing that he mentions in this context, and that's their relationship to the future. What is the relationship of these disciples to the future? I know the relationship to Christ, I know the relationship to one another, I know the relationship to the world they're going out in, what is their relationship to the future? Well, look at chapter 13 and in verse 36. He said, you can follow me where I'm going. Not now, but you can. So in chapter 13, remember where Peter said, uh, where are you going? And, and uh, he said, uh, he said, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. I'm going away, and you can go with me. That was a promise of something in the, yet in the future. Look at chapter 14. Chapter 14, when he said, let not your heart be troubled, he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and I will come again and receive you to myself. Yeah, I told you I'm going away. But get, get, get this in mind. Get this focus now, he's telling his disciples. I'm going away to prepare a place for you in my Father's house or many mansions. And I'm going to prepare the place, and then I'm coming back and take you back with me. There's something in the future. There's hope in the future. Now, one more passage, and the lesson will be yours. Let's go to chapter 17, back to the prayer now. 
Back to the prayer in verses 24 and 25, his prayer was that they may have hope. So he said, Father, I pray that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory. In other words, these disciples, I want them to be able to go with me to heaven. That they may behold my glory, which you have given me, and that you've loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you, and uh, that you sent me. What's he saying? I want them to be glorified. I want them to go and see the glory from which I came. I want them to see heaven. I want to see them to see eternity. So what is their, their relationship to the future? They can follow Christ. They can go with him. He's going to prepare a place. He's coming back to receive them and that they may have hope. Well, there's a lot more in chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 than those simple four points. But that was the discussion that Jesus had with those that he said he loved. It was his last discourse at the Last Supper. It was his last teaching to them. And it's packed full of all kinds of information, but could be summarized. This is your relationship to Christ. This is your relationship to one another. This is your relationship to the world you're going out into. And then this is your relationship to the future. It's there for you just like it is for me. And you can come and you can be a part of that. What is your relationship to Christ? Is your relationship to Christ of being a disciple, a follower? If not, would you become one even this evening? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge the faith that you have, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?